Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. The world is becoming smaller now in the COVID era. We are so grateful for all of the men and women working hard throughout the world to share their experience so that we may, as a society, stand united against this pandemic. We have been learning from stories across the world, including from Dr. Gianluca Pontone from Italy in episode 21 and Dr. Reza Hashemian from Iran in episode 22. But now, COVID-19 is here in America in our cities and hospitals. Our own brothers and sisters in healthcare are on the front lines fighting for our patients and their own families. Today, we get to hear from the front lines here at the home front. We are joined today by a hero from the front lines, Dr. Dan Grove. Dr. Grove serves as Assistant Director of Critical Care at MedStar Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore. He earned his medical degree at Emory University School of Medicine, where he also completed his residency and fellowship training in internal medicine and pulmonary and critical care medicine. Dr. Grove is a physician leader in his community, which is my community, and is involved in patient advocacy on many levels. Unfortunately, he was diagnosed with COVID-19 and is now broadcasting from home. He is chronicling his experience and reflections on mycovidjourney.com, and we will put up that link on our COVID page. This episode was recorded on March 24th, 2020. Remember, the knowledge in COVID-19 is rapidly evolving, so it's important to stay up to date with professional organizations like the WHO and the CDC, as well as your government officials. And I'll also add, you may stay up to date from sources of personal expression like Why I'm Afraid from Dr. Grove's blog. But friends, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. And the goal really is simply to learn more about COVID directly from the front lines. Dr. Grove, why don't we start off by having you introduce your role in the hospital when you're in the hospital, and do you have any involvement with medical education with residents? Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. In the hospital I work at, MedStar has a community internal medicine residency program, and so me and my partners are involved in educating the residents in the ICU. We round with them. We do lectures for them and grand rounds and all that sort of thing. We are directly involved in, in education. They're also visiting medical students as well. I think the MedStar program is the largest non-university-based internal medicine residency in the country. Oh, wow. And actually, as a medical student in University of Maryland Medical Center, I actually had the opportunity of doing several rotations there and learned quite a lot from the internal medicine staff. Obviously, you're going through your own journey and you're writing about it and exploring about it. And we really appreciate you coming on the show to tell us about what is going on. Do you feel comfortable telling us about your experience today and kind of your progression through getting the diagnosis and how you got the virus? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I should probably start the weekend before I had I had some interactions with some people from Long Island. And I think that's where I was affected. So I had no idea there was nobody was nobody told me that they were not feeling well. So I go to the ICU and pretty much the beginning of the week, we were doing what probably most hospitals are doing. We were starting to make plans about what to do if there's a big onslaught of patients. We were dealing with the issues of, you know, who do we test, who do we not test. There were a lot of patients who were probably low risk, but because of the heightened sense of fear, were getting tested anyways. 
we actually have a lot of patients in the ICU who we thought were low risk, but because of the delay in testing, they were stuck up there. We couldn't get them back to their nursing homes because we had to wait for the results to come back. And everything was fine until about Thursday evening, I started noticing that I was feeling like a little bit of a laryngitis, like kind of hoarseness. And so the times being what they were, I removed myself from the hospital. So I, I left early. I called in, a little early. In the, I mean, it was towards the end of the day. Anyways, I left early and called my partner to make sure I had backup coverage. I then developed a dry cough. So I called the occupational health and infectious disease head of the hospital. And the next day I attempted to get tested and it turned out to be quite an ordeal just to get the test done. Mm. Um, so I didn't go to work, but I had to, you know, I had to call, I think I called three or four different places. I went through different routes, going through online urgent cares, through MedStar, through other hospitals, asking friends. And finally they got it so that I could get tested through the ED at my hospital. And the test was done at Georgetown. So, and then over the weekend, I kind of got a little bit more sort of mild flu-like symptoms of persistent dry cough. I was told Saturday afternoon that the test was positive. And so, and since then, I've been sort of locked down in the basement and slowly recovering. Fortunately, I've had a very mild course. I, like I said, it's kind of like having a mild flu, low-grade fevers, coughing, kind of muscle aches. Tylenol has been a godsend, as has Robitussin DM. So I don't know what they're saying about the other treatments, but for sure, Tylenol and Robitussin DM should be on the list. <laughs> the essentials. <laughs> yeah. Tried and true. Yeah. Well, yeah, Dr. Grove, thank you for walking us through that experience. You know, it's hard to imagine that an ICU doctor is having a difficult time getting tested with symptoms like yours. I'm grateful for two things. One, I'm grateful that you've had a mild presentation and are recovering. And I, I can only imagine that recording a podcast is not easy with recovering laryngitis. So I'm also grateful that you agreed to do this. Going to your blog, we really enjoyed uh, reading about the origin of the word quarantine from your post titled, What is Quarantine? Do you mind going over that now and, and describing what steps you are taking to isolate yourself? Yeah, sure. So I, I learned this, that the, the word quarantine comes from the time of the Black Plague. The concept of quarantine or isolating people is probably as ancient as the understanding of medicine. But it, the word quarantine is a Venetian dialect term from the time of the Black Plague, where ships would come in to the harbor and they would be forced to isolate for 40 days. And quarantena is the word for 40 in the, that language. So they would stay isolated for 40 days before they would let them disembark. And so that's where the term quarantine comes from. So what I've been doing is pretty much the minute I started having symptoms, I moved to the basement. And what we've done, you know, I have uh, five children, so it's a little bit of a challenge, but wow. in the basement, oh my gosh. you know, thank God I'm blessed with a, 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 a big enough basement. I have a, a bathroom and a bedroom in the basement. I, I put on the floor tape and I drew a line with the tape. Mm. And the, that is the no cross line. And so nobody's crossing that line to my side and I'm not crossing to the other side. And what, and my wife, bless her heart, who is a righteous, righteous woman is bringing me down like food and she'll drop it off and then step back and then I'll pick things up. So she'll drop things in uh, across the line. I'll, and then when she takes a few steps back, I'll, I'll pick them up. So we're, we're doing our best to completely sort of separate me from the rest of the household. 
Wow. You know, Dan and I are also parents and we just, uh, I can't imagine what it must be like keeping yourself away from your family like that. Yeah. It's been both very difficult and quite relaxing at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) We can relate, I'm sure. (laughs) Do you have any advice for your colleagues in the front lines who are stepping up in ICUs and EDs everywhere? And, and, you know, there's, that's a broad question, but one thing in everybody's mind is when they come back home, how to protect their family, how to not bring sickness to their loved ones. Well, for the first thing is obviously follow the PPE guidelines on, there are uh, recommendations from the CDC on proper donning and doffing, which doffing was a new word I learned this week, um, which means <laughs> me too. the gown. Um, it, how to do it correctly. And I found that for whatever, since I've been going to the hospital as a second year medical student, I've pretty much been doing that wrong or at least not perfectly. Mm-hmm. So watch that video and practice, you know, every time you go to the room, even if it's just a MRSA patient, you know, practice taking the gown off correctly the way they recommend. That's the first step, you know, following the guidelines, taking it seriously, wiping down your computer station with, you know, with those Clorox wipes or whatever the type of sort of wipes that they have in your hospital, obviously washing your hands regularly. I think that's the most important thing. But the other most important thing is that, I don't know if you guys are like me, but I think a lot of healthcare workers uh, you know, they say that doctors make the worst patients. I think that there was a period where people, you know, where where I thought maybe, and and I had thoughts in my head before I isolated myself, where with this, you know, this sore throat I was having, this laryngitis, yeah, maybe it's allergies, you know, the, the trees are blooming, maybe I have a little cold, I don't know what it is, it's probably nothing, let's wait and see, right? Especially me, I, I, I have this sort of unique brand of hypochondriasis, where I'm not generally a hypochondriac, but if one of my kids gets that like thick, like runny nose and sick, I'm paranoid, you know, every little little scratchy throat, anything, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm getting Mm. sick, I'm getting sick. So I could, I could have easily said, oh, this is just because of my kids. Maybe it's nothing. I don't know. I'm always overreacting. Maybe this is another time. Don't explain it away. If you have a symptom and, and if at any point the thought comes in your head, you know, this, maybe this is COVID, go call your occupational health office and, and see what to do. Because you don't want to find out that, you know, every day extra that you're in the wards is another day you're putting people at risk. And you don't want to find out that, oh, that symptom I had yesterday that I explained away was really something serious. And for the last 24 hours, I've been putting people at risk. I mean, I'm glad that I didn't listen to all the thoughts in my head that it was allergies or whatever. And I just, I said, forget it, I'm going home. Um, and I wish I would have known earlier. And so make sure that if you have a thought that you're isolating yourself, you're taking special precautions when you come home, you know, geez, I think that it might be a good idea. I mean, I don't have any evidence for these things, but it seems like it'd be a good idea. Like you get home, you know, you know, if you could leave your shoes and scrubs at the hospital and change there, if you have that option or coming home and just uh, taking the clothes off, throwing them in the laundry and then taking a shower before sort of interacting with things, but certainly washing your hands. And maybe even your face a little bit when you get home probably would help. I don't, like I said, I don't have any evidence, but can't hurt, you know? And so I think those are all good ideas. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grove. Really, really was very vivid at taking us through the whole process and your transition from (laughs) physician to patient. So actually, so you talked about that where you actually had to realize like, no, this is real and I got to take this seriously in terms of your symptomatology and what's going on outside. But now that you've flipped into the role of the patient and you kind of have your wife taking care of you as you have done so much for the rest of your patients, is there anything that went through your mind, especially before you realized that your symptoms were going to end up being more milder than other people have? My first thought was that 
I really felt terrible that I might have exposed the whole ICU to this virus. Mm. I mean, I felt awful. I, I, you know, I guess you know, you always kind of, I always second guessed. I was thinking back to all the opportunities, like maybe, maybe I should have taken myself off the ICU earlier. Maybe I should have known. I'm not sure. And I felt really bad that I exposed Everett in the unit. Now it's caused such a great sort of turmoil in the administration. And actually, one of the nurses also has been sick as well. That was the charge nurse on the unit. I feel terrible that that I might have done that. And that was my first issue. The second issue was that I was concerned about what this meant for the hospital as a whole because I thought, like, just listen, I mean, if I if I could have exposed without knowing, who else around the hospital is walking around not feeling it? I never really was concerned about my own health because it doesn't seem like my demographic is a high-risk demographic. So I, I, I didn't ever feel like I was concerned about my health that, uh, the main issue was I was concerned about what it meant for the hospital. And I was also concerned that maybe, you know, I, I spread it around the community, although my family was pretty strict in following the guidelines. And I had gone nowhere but the hospital from the Sunday night, you know, when the CDC kind of shut down that Sunday night when the CDC shut down groups over 50 and the White House then said groups under 10. So my family was staying home except for my wife going to the grocery store. So those are my concerns. And and as the diseases progress, listen, it's like a mild flu, but it's it's not been so terrible for me, but I've been on various social media groups and stuff like that and hearing how it's affecting other people has been sort of alarming. No, no doubt. And I'm on some of the similar groups, actually. It's just the, the random symptomatology that we're hearing from all over the nation is just, uh, it's kind of astounding and really humbling in, in that we really have so much to learn that about COVID that beyond its respiratory effects, there's just this uh, just cascade of inflammation, but also random reports of anosmia and also neuropathies. So a lot to learn, a lot to learn on the subject. So, you know, we had talked about earlier that you actually are fortunate enough to work with trainees and really raise future critical care doctors. Uh, you know, I, I came across your blog, which has just been an excellent summary of what's going on. Again, that's mycovidjourney.com. We were wondering, what was the inspiration behind that? Tell us about how that came to be. When I, when I was thinking about getting sick, you know, one of the thoughts that came to my mind was that I have sort of a unique position. I don't... I hadn't heard of other, uh, at least American physicians who had been sick. So I felt like I could maybe communicate that in a different way. So the thing that I had been frustrated with, I think a lot of people are frustrated with, is that the popular media and the internet kind of creates this sort of nebulous cloud of random facts that don't necessarily fit together in a coherent way. And they generally present things in, in a very kind of overwhelmingly sensationalist way. I mean, that's how they make their money is to get your eyeballs. They have to get your attention. So that was on one side where the people were getting this information that was not necessarily reliable, certainly often sensationalistic and fatalistic and also not organized. On the other side, you had the governmental websites and the CDC, which were giving you all the information and they were giving it to you accurately but in a very sort of sterile and impersonal way. I, I kind of joke that like you go on the CDC website, it's amazing how the government has turned the internet into experience where while you're on the website, you feel like you're waiting in line at the DMV in an internet version. It's amazing. Like I don't understand. So it's, it's sterile, it's boring. And so between these two worlds, it's difficult for I think people in the community to really kind of know how to fit that all together. So I thought that if I could find a way to create a means of using a personal experience, sort of personalizing the disease for people, meaning it's so much easier to say to your neighbor, 
that, oh, I know this doctor in Baltimore who has the condition. This is what he's saying, as opposed to, did you hear what the news said about what's happening in Italy? Or I read the CDC website and I can't figure out what the guidelines are for my age group, you know? So I wanted to say, okay, using my personal experience to make something, it's something that people could relate to on an emotional and personal level, but still providing them with the information that the CDC and the government is providing. So that way they can relate to it better and send it around. And so that's what I've been doing. And I've also been trying to help people so that they can deal with the balance of, you know, how seriously should I take this and how do I not panic? You know what I mean? People are panicking and they're making poor decisions. And I want to make sure that we can sort of have the balance. How do you take this seriously, but not become overwhelmed with anxiety. You know, I think we we certainly are very thankful for the service you're providing and, and the work you're doing to really contextualize all this barrage of information in a very realistic and personal way. Broadly speaking, I think one silver lining of the pandemic is public irrefutable recognition of the work that experts at the CDC do to keep us safe and informed. Would you mind telling us a little about your training days uh, with the CDC and Emory? Yeah, so technically, I didn't I didn't train at the CDC, but the way Emory is, Emory is well known for its superior infectious disease training and physicians. I mean, I I cannot tell you how impressive these guys are. And I remember in training, we, most of our infectious disease attendings and a lot of our internal medicine attendings were co sort of they had co appointments with the CDC. We had attendings that were part of the epidemiological investigation service, and we got a lot of lectures about that sort of thing. And I always remember during my training being just so impressed with just how brilliant and knowledgeable these folks were in all aspects of infectious disease and epidemiology and also in public health. And so I have the utmost faith in, in that institution. I, I think we should all really take everything they say with the highest level of evidence and the most reliable source of information. So Dr. Grove, I personally know you and I've been in touch with you and we've been talking about the COVID virus as it literally, the story has literally been unfolding in front of our very eyes. And you are on the forefront of the community that I live in and in helping guide the way that we all conduct ourselves as a society. And you've been incredibly influential and we are just so lucky to have you as a community leader. There are other communities that have leaders like you, especially in the physician, and I'm talking about not on the citywide level, but at the neighborhood-wide level. There was a particular physician from Toronto who had urged his community to think of the virus as smarter than all of us, that's a quote, and urged for extreme social uh, distancing measures, a bunch of things that we are actually following now, according to the current guidelines of the government authorities. You had written a, a rebuttal document that you had sent around, and I'll read an excerpt from that and then kind of ask you how you feel about this now. You wrote earlier that I appreciate the passion and concern that Dr. So-and-so expressed in his message, but would like to offer a rebuttal. I am also a frontline physician working in an ICU in Baltimore. I believe that Dr. So-and-so's response is too extreme and crosses a line that will lead to unnecessary anxiety and panic. Let me be clear. I am by no means downplaying the seriousness of the situation. It may be that the situation changes as things evolve. So what has your experience been sending out this message? And did you get a response from that? And also, how has things evolved and the way that you look at the COVID pandemic? Let me be clear. I, my issue with that message that was sent out was it was sent to me by family members. I have family members that live in that community, and they sent that to me, and they were in a panic. And they were freaking out. They didn't know what to do. And I got that forwarded to me from multiple sources, like, what do we do? What do we do? We're freaking out. And so the issue I took with, with that message was the tone and it was the tone of panic. Now, the panic is never helpful, even in scenarios that are more severe than this. I mean, 
the world has experienced situations similar or worse in terms of the level of threat to, to humanity. And decisions that are made in a situation of panic are usually poor decisions. And so my, my issue was the tone, that it was too much panic. And the second issue was that in that same post, he was saying that the government and public health authorities were wrong and could not be trusted. And that was very concerning to me because I was afraid that if we undermine the public trust in these institutions, this would be very harmful and could only fuel the panic and poor decision-making. If people have nobody that they can trust, then they're going to really lose all hope and, and start making some poor decisions. So those are the issues I took with what he was saying, because at the time he was recommending measures that were not being re recommended by the local, regional, national, and international public health authorities. So my recommendations then is the same as my recommendations now, which is whatever the CDC or the White House or whatever your sort of state public health authority is recommending, that's what you should be doing. And we shouldn't think that they're wrong, but we should follow what they do. And the second part of your question is, how have my experience, how has my experience changed since or as things have evolved? And the answer is it's the same, only it's evolved with. I still believe we should follow what the CDC says. And what they're saying is also evolving as the whole situation is evolving. So now I'm as strict as is recommended by, you know, the governor of Maryland and the White House and the CDC as I was then. And so that was my concern with what he said. But I, I definitely appreciate and, and, and am empathetic to his sort of his concerns. No, thank you very much, Dr. Grove. That really makes a lot of sense. And I totally understand your perspective, especially as things evolve, as the epidemiology evolves. And so the government is, you know, weighing out these tremendous decisions to make that have serious consequences on everyday people. They are also taking in the information that comes daily and, and giving recommendations. And I agree, as a society, we absolutely require some sense of orderness because we otherwise would fall apart. And so definitely understand your perspective. So just flipping over to a different topic, I have a dear friend that was recently diagnosed with COVID and he was wondering when it would be safe to go back to work or leave his house. So I said, I'm actually going to be talking to an ICU yeah. doc who has the same question. So what, what would you recommend? So the CDC, I, I, again, the CDC recommends there's sort of like two ways to do it. You can either do it by getting tested. And I think you need two consecutive tests that are negative, which is, I don't know, it, it, it was hard enough to get one test. So I don't know how that's going to happen. But there's a non-testing-based non strategy, which is what they're recommending is that if you go three days where you've had no fever and your respiratory symptoms are reducing, then you can remove yourself from isolation. But it has to have been at least seven days. So for me, uh, that will be Friday. And so that's what I'm going to release from isolation. And the good news is, is that I will be able to then go back to the hospital and I'm going to be the, the intubation man because everybody's so worried about getting it. And hopefully the CDC is also going to start coming out with guidelines for how to approach being in the hospital if you have recovered. And does it mean that we need no restrictions or should we, you know, we don't need an N95 and all that stuff. And I, I'm hoping that we'll be able to guide us on that in that respect. But as of now, I'm assuming that I'm going to have at least um, <clears throat> good short-term immunity and I'm going to do my best to fill in the gaps so that people don't have to expose themselves as much in the hospital. We're also on a lot of these groups, especially WhatsApp groups, where people are just like rapid fire talking about a lot of different experimental treatments that are available. As somebody with COVID, and, I, and it looks like you know, you're going to get by with some tender love and care from your family, especially your wife. How do you see all these different trials and tricks and treatments and suggestions from many different physicians all over the globe? So here's the, I mean, the problem is this is such a hard thing to do. I mean, it's remarkable that 
we know anything about this virus in such a short period of time and that we'll be able to test for it and we actually already have studies on treatments. You know, I, I, as a critical care physician, always read the big cardiology publications with great jealousy because you read about these, an N of 15,000 and how, you know, what are you guys on, like Timmy 500 now? I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and how, wow, if we could just do that in critical care. I mean, the problem is obviously it's very difficult to create control arms and patient selection and the complexity of the patients in critical care to really do good quality research. My general opinion is that if there's a drug that's been out there for a long time and has a proven sort of track record of safety, and if there's a reasonable basic science or scientific reason why it may be effective. And there's some data, even if it's poor quality data, I think it's something that's worth trying. Now, sometimes people will read the data on some of the stuff that's coming out and be like, oh, you know, oh, it's it's an open label trial. There are only 40 patients, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, you know, that's the best you're going to get in this time frame. So if it's safe, it's, it should be considered. Should it be used? I'm not sure. You know, it's probably that we're going to find out that much of the things we're doing now are, are ineffective in a year, you know, when they really, when the dust settles and they tease out all the details. So I think that we should really strongly consider using these medications if they're, you know, if they're, if they're known to be safe or at least their safety profile is known and can be monitored. And if there's a chance that they're effective. Now, the caveat to that is that since so many people have mild disease, in fact, the vast majority of people, we should be careful that since there's a chance that these things are really effective, and since the demand is going to be so high, we have to be sure that we ration these appropriately. So that if, for example, if hydroxychloroquine is really effective, and it might be, maybe, maybe not, the data is probably too small to say for sure, but maybe, but if it is effective and there's a chance that it is, we should be reserving it for the sickest patients because it'd be terrible if it was effective and in, it ran out because everybody was, you know, getting it from the CVS or the Walgreens and there was none left for the hospitals. So in the context of appropriate distribution of resources and public health and all those things which need to be decided on sort of a governmental level, I think we should try anything that that is known to be safe and for which there is a good rationale why it would be effective. You know, Dr. Grove, I have to agree with you that we were all so impressed by how quickly we started studying COVID and started generating information. And I think it just goes to show you the way in which the the scientific, medical, and public health communities rallied, just that, you know, people people come together at times like this. And I'll say that going to uh, how we take in information Data projections and world maps really, they convey needed information, but stories like yours with, with a personal face and voice are, are often far more powerful, which is why I found your blog so meaningful for myself and, and why I found the post titled, Why I'm Afraid, so compelling. Within it, you were reflecting on the outpouring of love and concern you received about your illness and wrote, and I quote, while I certainly appreciate this, I wasn't personally afraid. I wasn't afraid until yesterday. And you wrote that today. So let me ask you, what happened yesterday and should we be collectively afraid? So I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the concept of flattening the curve, which to me, again, was is classic sort of government website speak, which is trying to get people motivated with graphs, which doesn't generally work unless you're probably a cardio nerd. I guess you guys are probably <laughs> excited by graphs, but... but pro- we, the we love probably, graphs yeah. and stories. I'm sure. We do, definitely do. <laughs> Styling curve, you love that thing, don't you? The, um, and echoes, and echoes. But, you know, that's a... <laughs> so the general population does not respond 
I don't think very well to grass. And so what happened was, is that I saw a video of a, a physician named Peter Atia on Instagram, which sort of described his analysis of the data. And he used real numbers, real numbers that show, you know, that over a period of, you know, four days, the number of ICU beds went from 150 to 621 when they may only have 2000 in the whole city. And so when I saw the numbers and saw how real the concept was, I became afraid for sort of the healthcare system. And so when I got sick and everybody was so worried about me, I was like, wait a second, you know, I'm not worried about me. I'm, I'll be a fine. I, I'm worried about sort of the healthcare system as a whole. And what are the downstream effects of that going to be? You know, if we always worry about, okay, what if the hospital is overflowing with COVID patients on ventilators? You know, if you think about it for a second, it's not like the other diseases are going to take a few months off. You know, COPD is not going to be like, hey, well, we'll come back, you know, in the fall, you know, and the heart attacks are not right, stopping right. and heart failure is not stopping and all these things are not stopping. So what is going to happen to those patients? And what's going to happen if somebody needs an emergent appendectomy or some other procedure? What if there's not ventilators for the OR, you know? for emergency surgeries, you know, it's, it's, so all these kind of came to, to play and I became very afraid again, not for me, but for sort of the, the general community and the healthcare systems. And so it was my concerns about the healthcare system and the fact that there seemed to be a disconnect between what people in the community were afraid of is what made me concerned. I think everybody was so concerned about their own health, which is understandable, but they weren't thinking sort of about the, the picture sort of beyond their doors and how that could impact the whole community. And so that was why I became afraid because I'm worried that the, the hospital systems become overrun, which is something that everybody had been sort of warning about, but they, they always warn about it in this sort of far off kind of vague way. And when Dr. Atia sort of put the numbers on like in real time, he showed how the numbers are working in real time. And then there was also a post going around, which I sort of edited from a, a, an anesthesiology resident in Italy about what their real experiences is. When you combine those two things of both what seems to be coming and you see how it's coming in like really seeing the numbers and you see what is happening in Italy and how, geez, that might happen here. All of a sudden, this becomes really a real, real thing. It got real. It got real quick for me. And that's why I became afraid. And so I wanted to try to communicate as much as possible to friends, family, anybody who will listen that, you know, this is what we all should be afraid of. And this is why it's so important, you know, to, to isolate yourself, to follow all the instructions of, of the government strictly, you know, don't just say, oh, listen, a lot of people are saying, well, I'm young, I'll be fine, you know, and, and that issue, just really take these things seriously. If you feel sick, just, you know, assume it's the COVID until really, you know, you know, for sure and, and, and take it seriously. And that's why I became afraid. And so generally, I, when I say afraid, I'm not, you know, in panic or anxious. I just wanted to create a post that really tried to make this more personal and real, which is kind of what my goal with this blog has been the whole time is to take this thing that's so big and overwhelming and make it something that people can kind of connect to on a real sort of personal and, and, and emotional level without being overwhelmed by panic and anxiety. It's a very uh, uh, sobering message and I think a very real one. And, and I'd like to share uh, on this note a couple of sentences from a letter from a, a department head coming from a major New York City hospital that a friend, uh, Sama Nimatoli, shared on Twitter. And, and the department head writes, projections presented at that day estimate that we will reach peak COVID-19 volume within 22 to 32 days, at which point the system will need 700 to 934 ICU beds. The lower estimate exceeds 
our ICU capacity, even with surge construction. The fear for the system as a whole is very much real and palpable. Yes, and I'll echo uh, what Ahmed said. You know, being part of the Cardinger team, we've had a perk that we've been able to interview so many people from around the globe. And our hearts bleed as we talk to our colleagues in Italy, Iran, now Spain, and then uh, and then several colleagues in Columbia University in New York, which is so close to home. And I, I grew up really close to Columbia University. We see our own hospitals, large hospitals just totally restructure to meet the demand of what's coming or what's already here. And we also, we echo that sentiments. We are afraid, but again, we are also not panicked. We're going to approach this rationally and make the best decisions that we can with the limited data that we have at our fingertips and uh, do right by our patients as well as society. So we can kind of end this interview with asking about what you would want to deliver as a message to our audience from this blog post, which is just fantastic, and what we both read while preparing for this interview. I'm going to implore you to forward this message to everyone you know, send it to friends, family, and strangers. Post it on every social media platform as many times as you can. Shout it out from the rooftops. So Dr. Grove, what would you like to shout out from the rooftops? Just take it seriously. Like I, I always tell people, be careful, but don't be fearful, right? You know, take the, take the recommendations of your government seriously. When they say, you know, don't go out or if they make restrictions, follow those restrictions. If you're sick, isolate yourself. You know, do you, I'm not like, I'm not recommending any, <clears throat> anything that's radical. What's, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sort of give a personalization or I'm trying to personalize the message from the CDC and from the local governments and the federal government, trying to personalize it so that people will take it seriously. Now, many people are taking it seriously. Some are taking it to a point of anxiety, which I don't think is helpful either. But also, some people are not taking them seriously and some people are not listening. I've been hearing some scary reports of people who don't think it's a legit thing or it's a hoax or whatever. So I'm hoping that by spreading this message around, people will continue to take it seriously and stay safe and and help slow down the spread. But again, if I could shout from the rooftops, listen, listen to the CDC, take it seriously, follow their guidelines, listen to your government, follow their guidelines, and I think we'll make it through it. Well, thanks, Dr. Grove. And really, thanks for taking, I know you have a lot of time now, but I'm sure you're very busy from from the basement. Uh, This has been a real pleasure for us. Yeah, I guess Friday I, I get released. I get I, I go from maximum security prison to my minimum security prison upstairs. You have a message. You're shouting it from the rooftops from your website. <laughs> from the- you have our attention. We are listening. Thank you so much. I wish I could get to the rooftop. I need some fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareem prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com and please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now a flutter moment. Hey, Cardio Nerds. This is Danny Dimitriou from New York City. I am the principal investigator of the Door Lab, or the Developmental Origins of Resilience Lab. Recently, we've been studying um, what I would consider the most resilient animal known to man, the New York City wild rat. Yep, you heard that right. What got my heart to flutter recently was our very first wild rat that we caught. I was so excited that morning that I came in early before my students 
and um, I came in so that I could look at our traps and the very last one I was checking there was a gorgeous healthy tenacious rat don't worry though we don't harm them we just hang out with them for a few hours we study their behavior we take some samples under anesthesia of course and then off they go returning to the streets of New York City anyway really awesome show you guys wish I'd had access to it in med school residency but even now, as a pediatric attending in the newborn nursery, I still do try to keep up with cardio concepts, so very useful.